a big week at the Wimhoff House. Uh, Wednesday uh, was the first day of school, and uh, it was Brooks's first day of school. We started kindergarten this year. Uh, most of you know Brooks is our youngest, and uh, so for the previous 13 years, there have been children in our house the vast majority of the working day. And uh, so I really feel like we're, we're entering in this uh, new stage of life. And, um, and you know, and Eden's not here today. Her, her, they're at their grandparents, the girls are. And uh, you guys have seen her. I mean, she's grown up so much. I mean, it's really crazy to say I'm a parent of a teenager, you know? Like, I, I really don't feel like it was that long ago I was in college. But here I am. I'm 41 years old. And I am entering into what has been referred to as the middle years of life. Now, I hope I don't have a midlife crisis. If I did, I wouldn't be buying a Corvette. I would probably just get something new. And uh, that would, you should feel weird about that if you know me. I just don't do new, especially cars. I like my 20-year-old Toyotas. So, uh, but these are my middle years. And uh, one Catholic priest that I saw this week, uh, he's done a lot of work around maturity, and he found... Uh, that these middle years, that, that the early years, the 20s and 30s, early part of adulthood, he calls the heroic years. And during these years, you work hard, you find love, you build a beautiful life. But also during these years, you become aware of the previous generation and their mistakes. You resolve to not repeat those same mistakes. You're sure you never will repeat those mistakes. There's a lot of energies in your 20s and 30s. And that's a gift to the world. It's needed. These 20s and 30s are marked by accomplishment and recognition, measurable progress, making the world a better place, determination, vision, ambition. All of these are heroic thinking. But somewhere in our late 30s, somewhere in our 40s, we become aware that we've made one glaring oversight. That you spent all these early years critiquing the world around you and wanting to change it. And then in your late 30s and your early 40s, you begin to see that there aren't just problems out there, but there's problems in here. Tolstoy said, everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing themselves. And I've come to terms with this. See, church planners uh, are by nature entrepreneurs. Church planners rarely ever could work in a big corporation or rarely could be a government worker. They need to be pioneering. They need to be changing the world. But in the last couple of years, I've seen that what you need as a church and what our neighborhood needs from me is not to be heroic, but to make a commitment to my own growth and grace. And as I've committed to this Growth, I've seen my inner darkness, I've seen my sin, I've seen my shortcomings. At times I've been really embarrassed, at times I've been led to despair, at times I've been tempted to ignore the inner work I've got to do and just go back to the frenetic entrepreneurial life. So I feel the gravity of this. I feel the cultural pressure to just stay on the hamster wheel of ambition and impact. But I'm choosing to slow down. Look at my life more closely. Bring my sin and woundings and gifts to the table and beg God to change me. Now, I know that few of you are where I'm at in life. Most of you are in the thick of your hero years. And it's awesome. 
Jen and I, we love those years of having babies, of growing professionally, settling into our home. And now we love watching you as you do some combination of those things now. But regardless of your age, there's always this need for personal change. That's hard for us to remember as Christians. It seems like a lot of Christians spend more time critiquing our culture than critiquing themselves. But we as a church want to fight against that temptation by putting our need for change at the front of our mission statement, at the front of who we are as a church. Our mission statement starts with applying the person and work of Jesus Christ to ourselves. Meaning that as long as you have breath, there are places in your life that have not been touched by the gospel. So we want to explore that today. We want to explore by looking at Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, and by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The word of the Lord. Do you see the fork in the road there in that passage? You can either conform or be transformed. Two options. Paul is trying to say the Christian life is not static, that we're on a trajectory. Martin Luther once said, he said, no one is as good as they could be. So let me say it again. No one is so good as that he could not become better. And no one is so evil as that he could not become worse. CDC, trajectory. But what determines which path you'll take? Well, our text says that our trajectory is determined by our habits. That we become what we give our attention to. We become what we give our love to. And our love is shaped by our habits. Let me give you a few examples. Let's just take sports. Especially these last few years, I've noticed that the more I read about UK football, the more that I attend the games, the more I'm around those who also love UK football, the more I love UK football. And since you think about it, I'm pretty sure... I'm certain, actually, that if I didn't read as much or I refused to go to games or I refused to indulge in conversation with other UK football lovers, that my passion then would wane. Or take my favorite restaurant. Went on Friday night. Loved it. County Club. I found that the more I go, the more I love it. Orange Theory. Working out is not my favorite pastime. But like County Club, the more I go to Orange Theory, the more I love it. But we usually don't think this way, do we? Let me put it the other way. We usually think that our habits evidence our love, right? Like, I love County Club, therefore I go to County Club. But I think it's also true that because I go to County Club, I love County Club. See, our habits are not just effects. They are also causes. So if you want to change who you are, you have to change what you pay attention to. See, your habits do things to you. Your routines and rituals are constantly going to work on your hearts. And if your routines and rituals are directed to the world and directed to its deities, then you're going to conform to them. 
And I say the world's deities, and I don't really mean Buddha or Allah. What I'm more referring to is materialism, sports, your job, your career, sex, or commitment to comfort. Because everything in our world is trying to get you to bow down at these altars. So what are your habits? Do you scroll through your feeds as soon as you get out of bed? The images that you see in your feeds, what are they telling you to love? Who are the people that you spend time with habitually? What do they love? Family? Success? Money? Well, if they do, you will too. See, if you look at your daily, your weekly, your monthly, your annual routines, you will then discover what you love. James Smith, Christian philosopher, said, Your deepest desire is the one manifested by your daily life and habits. And the habits for transformation our text lays out here. There are two. Do you see them? One is presenting our bodies. The other is renewing our minds. These are the two things that will transform your life. One term is used to describe these habits frequently, and this term is spiritual disciplines. Things like prayer, reading your Bible, going to church. These are the means of grace, the concrete forms, concrete practices that Jesus promises that he'll be found in. And as you meet Jesus in those practices, you will be transformed more into his image. And you will be able to know what God's will is for your life. See, who we are as Christians, who we are as human beings is that we're imitative by nature. We can either conform to the world as we expose ourselves and our habits to the world, or we'll transform like Jesus as we expose ourselves to him and our habits. It might be at this point that you begin to roll your eyes. Oh my gosh. Marsh, I like being here because you don't talk about reading your Bible and praying and that's the only application you ever have to any of your sermons. I love that about being here and here you go. You're exactly who I thought you'd be. But that's exactly what I'm saying. So see, you think about the timeline of your life. Let's start here. This is your birth. This over here is your death. And let's just presume that in the middle of your life you become a Christian. And you ask the question, what is it that you needed to know before you were a Christian? What is the message that you needed to hear? And then you'll say, well, they need to hear the gospel. You need to hear how you're reconciled unto God. That's the message that, that's what non-Christians need to hear. That's the message. Okay, let me ask it this way. What's the message you need to hear once you're converted? Once you become a Christian, what is it? What is that message? You might say, well, you need to learn about the Bible. You've got to learn about service and personal holiness and spiritual disciplines. You need discipleship. That's what you need once you become a Christian. So unbelievers need the gospel. Christians need discipleship. Now, I'm not against discipleship. But in our minds, I think what we usually think about when we think about discipleship is that we think about rules. And sometimes it looks like these rules work, doesn't it? Especially if you're type A. See, type A folks have a lot of willpower. They're ready to use it. But eventually, even type A people fizzle out. 
and then they discard those practices as ineffective because they quit working. Yet here's what I believe the problem is. The problem is in the message. The problem is that you're working with the wrong message once you become a Christian. The message you've been working with is if I do these things, God's going to love me. But if you're going to engage in the disciplines for the long haul, you're going to need a different message. You're going to need the same message that you needed before you became a Christian. You need the gospel. You need grace. The message that you work with on this side of the equation is, I do these things because I'm already loved. I do these things to keep my belovedness before me. So don't you see how grace is the great motivator? It's the great change agent for conversion. It's the great motivator for Christians. And that's exactly why verse 1 starts the way that it does. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God. And therefore, in chapter 12, verse 1, is pointing back to the previous 11 chapters of the book of Romans. And he's calling them to remember all the mercies that he's expounded upon. And how God's just dumped his mercy into their lives. Let me just recall a few. Start with Romans 3. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's mercy. Chapter 4. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Mercy. Chapter 5. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Mercy. Romans chapter 6. For sin will, not, will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Mercy. Chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Mercy. Now I just picked out a few of the spots in the first 11 chapters. But the first 11 chapters of Romans are covered with how God has been gracious to his people. And so when Paul says, therefore, in verse 1, remember the mercies of God, that's what he's pointing back to. It's just one long string of pearls to try to convince us that God actually loves us. Paul's going to great lengths to explain the different angles of this gospel. And this gospel is the good news that God has accomplished our salvation for us through Christ in order to bring us in, in right relationship with him and eventually to destroy all the results of sin in the world. It's news. It's news to be received and believed before it's ever something to join. If it were something to join first and foremost, then the gospel would be something that you do. But the gospel is something that's done for us. It creates a whole new way of life, sure. It leads to a life of good deeds, sure. It leads to a life of obedience, sure. But you got to get the order right. Grace comes before works. God's mercy drives you to a life where you're, it's depicted by renewing your mind and presenting your body. God's mercy towards you is the foundation. It's the basis. It's the grounds. It's the spring by which you practice 
the spiritual disciplines that God uses to transform you. So when you hear of God's great love for you, you want to practice these disciplines. You do it not out of guilt. You do it out of desire. See, God's love for you sparks your love for him. And you'll begin to mirror back to him in the world the smile that he has lavished on you. I once watched this video. It was, of, uh, it, it was put, put on by a, a therapist, and the video is a mother showing great delight in her baby. It's just the two of them on the screen. And the mother is laughing and talking to the baby. She's playing with the baby's hands, and the baby's going ballistic. I mean, the baby is loving life. There's exuberance everywhere with this baby. But then all of a sudden, the mother turned. She turned cold. She wasn't mean. She wasn't nasty. She wasn't screaming at the baby. She just went flat toward the baby. And the baby ended up kicking and screaming and trying to get the mother's attention to wake her up. So the whole point of the video was when the mother was loving her baby, the baby couldn't help but respond in love. But when the mother was cold, the baby couldn't respond to her in love. See, brother and sister, if you're in Christ, it's impossible for God to go flat on you. It's impossible for him to frown at you. So no matter how little you've practiced these disciplines, or no matter how faithful you've been and you're unfaithful you've been in your life, you need to know that you're guaranteed nothing but his smile. Therefore, by the mercies of God, See, that's an essential truth for your transformation of mind, too. It gets put perfectly in a poem by John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress. He writes this, Run, child, run, the law commands, but it gives neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. I'll read, I'll read it again. Run, child, run, the law commands, but it gives neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings that bids me fly and gives me wings. See, the gospel has the power to save you, but it also has the power to motivate you towards transformation. And so as you look at this upcoming ministry year that we've talked about today, that we're going to talk about in this meeting coming up, as we double down on our vision as a church, let me encourage you to ponder God's mercies to you. And my prayer is that it will lead you to practice these disciplines, that you'll sign up for a Bible study and you'll read the Bible with other people. My hope is that you present your bodies here in worship in a neighborhood group more and more, not to get God's attention or to improve your life per se, but because you need to be further convinced that God hasn't gone flat on you, that you are indeed his beloved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. Lord, forgive us for all the ways. Lord, that we have missed it. Lord, we have tried uh, to live the life you've called us to under our own strength. Lord, how we, uh, ha we think that our belovedness with you is dependent upon our performance. Lord, forgive us. Help us see the gospel is indeed good this morning. In Christ's name, amen.